0: We're well, continuing our series on Second Timothy 1:1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. And I got to begin by apologizing to, to everyone—not uh, intentionally misleading you, but misleading you nonetheless. I think I promised last week that this week would be an application sermon, but every week I have to study. Right? I can't just just kind of go on the notes from the week before and. That's what gets me in trouble. I study, and I I discover more truths in Scripture. And so I have the joyful news to tell you that um, applications will not be this week, but it will be next week. But because of that, there will be greater joy next week as we apply these principles to our lives. I just sense, week after week, as I delve into the Scriptures, just a great sense of stewardship, uh, a great burden to be faithful to the text. I I don't want to cheat you, But more than that, I don't want to cheat the text. I don't want to cheat God's Word. So I want to be faithful to exegete the whole, but exegete the parts especially. And so that is why we're maybe belaboring this point. But I believe it is well worth our attention, well worth our meditation and study. And I am wholly confident that next week, when we apply uh, these points to our lives, to our ministry, to our church, to our families, you will l- agree that our time and the principles of Scripture, and the doctrinal, theological parts of Scripture was well worth it. That's not just me inventing this philosophy of ministry. This method of ministry, this was the pattern of the Apostle Paul. Book of Romans, for example, 11 chapters of heavy theology, Before any applications, I think there's one indicative in 11 chapters of Romans. And in chapter 12, he begins with all these imperative commands, applying these truths, the believers in Rome. That was his modus operandi for Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, so on and so forth. So we have a pattern set before us, and that's what we're striving to do here at our church. So we've been looking at the apostles of Christ Jesus the Apostolic Ministry of the Apostles. We've discovered in the past two studies that they were special men for a special time, for a special tasks. Four qualifications of the Apostles were, first, they must be from the nation of Israel. They must be from the Jewish nation. Deuteronomy 18, God said, I will raise up a prophet from among your brothers. Secondly, they must have seen the risen Lord. Just being part of his earthly incarnational ministry was not enough. They must be witnesses, primary witnesses to the risen Christ. Acts chapter 1. Not only that, they must be personally commissioned by Christ. That's why Timothy is not an apostle. Titus is not an apostle. They were commissioned by the apostle Paul, but not by Christ himself. They do not qualify. It's not about their godliness or character or giftedness or abilities. It's just that they weren't personally commissioned by Christ. An apostle must be ordained by the Lord himself. Matthew 10, Acts 26. Paul makes much of this point. That not only did he see the risen Lord, but when the risen Lord appeared to him, Christ himself commissioned him, appointed him, called to him to this task. That is why he calls himself a prisoner of the Lord. I did not choose this. This was not my aspiration in life. I didn't want to be an apostle when I was when I was when I was young. No, he appeared to me. He came to me. He ordained me. He chose me before the beginning of time for this task. All right? John fifteen sixteen. You did not choose me, but I chose you. To the twelve apostles or eleven without Judas, and Paul as well. And then finally, their ministry must be accompanied by signs, wonders, and miracles. This is God's way of a stamp of approval, validating a man and his message that he is from God, and his message is from God as well. Hebrews 2, 1-4 through 4, talks about the message of this great salvation, how it was declared by the Lord... And it was attested to us by those who heard, the apostles. And verse 4, God bore witness. God gave testimony. God bore witness. How? By signs, wonders, and various miracles. So how did God confirm this message of the gospel and confirm these men? By these miracles. A dear brother came up to me after, uh, after after the sermon last Sunday, And he said, Pastor James, does God then not perform miracles any longer? You said that miracles have ceased. Does that mean God doesn't perform miracles? And I said, oh dear brother, I just didn't have the time, didn't have the, just the precision, precise mind to articulate all the nuances surrounding these miracles, but I'll, I'll just tell, I told him and I tell you that God performs miracles to this very day. God performs miracles every single day right now, all over the world. And the greatest miracle is salvation of the lost. Remember Christ said in John 14, you will do greater works than me. What are the greater works? What are the lesser works? The lesser works is feeding the 5,000 with loaves of bread and fish. The lesser works, lesser miracles, walking on water. The greater miracles that, that the apostles did and we are doing is being used being used by as instruments of God for salvation of the lost men and women who are unregenerate, dead and trespass, rebels against God, haters of God, full of enmity and 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 depravity. And we share the gospel, and they get saved. The hearts are changed. That's a miracle. That's supernatural. That is not of man. That is by the Holy Spirit. Only God can do that. Does God perform such miracles today? Yes. Now, if we're talking about miracles in terms of signs, wonders, and miracles, well, God does perform miracles of healing today, but not through any human agent. Not through any person's giftedness. No one has the gift of healing today. Right? We believe God heals. That's why we pray for healing. Last communion, it went long, right? We're all hungry by the end of it. Why? Because we're praying and... Many prayers were lifted up for the healing of people in our church. And I was talking to Pat this Friday night, I don't know if I could share this, but you guys know if you talk to me, no promises, it might come out in a sermon. So, be forewarned. Anything you share with me, right, other than 5% of sensitive things, I'm gonna, it might come out in a message. But he was telling me how ever since that communion service, his hips been feeling good. He might delay surgery. He hasn't had any major pains. And he wants to thank Christ and thank God's church for the prayer because he has personally sensed God's healing hand in his body because of our prayers. So we pray for healing, but no one has the gift of healing because the gift of healing is you know the mind of God. You know the will of God. And you have divine authority to execute healing on God's behalf. So you know the mind of God and you say, silver or gold I don't have, but what I have I will give to you. In the name of Christ, of Lazarus, rise up and walk. And you walk. And you leap. And you run. And you rejoice. That kind of power is limited to the apostles within the New Testament time period. And not to us. No one has such authority today. We have the authority, John sixteen twenty four, to go to Christ and pray in His name and say, God, if it be your will... Let this person be healed. Right? Let my, and my friend be healed. Let my family member be healed. Let my family ever be saved. So on and so forth. Right? Maybe the Lakers win a right? playoff game this year, a series this year. We can pray. But no one has the the power to do that any longer. Right? I mean just the power to raise the dead. The dead person has no faith. Has no Volitional powers, no mental capabilities to comprehend, understand the gospel, comprehend, understand, or pray. So uh, someone who has the power to work miracles goes to a dead person and raises them up. That's power. We have no such authority and we see that proven by church history. Even the Apostle Paul saw towards the end of his ministry, his power of healing ebb away from him as the canon of scripture was being completed. Right? In the beginning, he, was raised, he raised Eutychus from the dead. And yet, towards the end of his ministry, his powers, power to heal, the gift of healing was going away from him because the scripture was becoming prominent. So when he had that thorn in the flesh, he prayed to the Lord three times, Lord, if it be your will, take this thorn from me. But God's will wasn't. His grace was sufficient. When the prophet died as the Philippians, almost died because he got sick and ministered to Paul, Paul was helpless couldn't heal, didn't heal, didn't heal him, couldn't heal him, because the gift of healing was being removed from him, because the canon of scripture was being finished. Remember Timothy, he had stomach problems, right? Paul didn't say, yeah, come here, right? Let I me mean, just take that away from you. He said, Timothy, you weak guy, you know, take some wine. Water's water is dirty, I don't know, doctors can help you with that, but you know, take some wine and settle your stomach. So, that's what we're talking about. These apostles were unique, special men, called by grace, sinners like us. But, but God's grace was upon them. God's selection was upon them in a unique time period. And they were chosen to, to, de- to reveal divine revelation for us all. So here we are. We studied that and we see the apostles, their mission. They were special men and with special commission, special purpose, special tasks. They were entrusted with the following four tasks. We'll review the first two and get to number three uh, as soon as we can. Remember the first one was the apostles of Christ were, were entrusted with the true knowledge of God. Now we belabor this point because it is so important, and you'll see this next week when we apply it, how we have been entrusted with great stewardship with something of great value. Christ entrusted the true knowledge of God to the apostles. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, but God did one and only. Right, no man can see God and live. He lives in unapproachable light. Men were stammering in darkness. The pro- prophets gave gl- glimpses of the, of the glory of God. Yet when Christ came, He was the blazing glory of God. It was the radiance of God's being. Second Peter 1.3 or Hebrews 1.3. And so to see Christ was to see God. And so men were finally able to see God, His true character, His true essence, true nature. And that true knowledge of God was entrusted to the apostles. And the apostles, through the scriptures, they've entrusted this knowledge to us. So as Bible-believing Christians, as evangelicals, our most precious commodity, our most precious stewardship, our, our heritage that God has given to us in Christ is the knowledge of God. And that's the application for next week. And we will study how the most precious thing in our lives, in our church, is the doctrine of God. We must never have this idea that, that theology proper, the doctrine of God is like basic theology. It's, it's, it's you know, basic knowledge. We need to move on to more higher, lofty understanding of the scriptures. and the More, more the, the nuances, more the specifics, more being interested in the controversies and the and debates as if those were higher level Christianity. No, for us, the most precious thing in our lives is what Christ has revealed to us about our Father in heaven. And for the Christians that have been Christians for longer periods, or older believers, we know this to be true, not just doctrinally, but experientially. That really, as we live the Christian life, what is most beneficial to us, especially in times of trials, in terms of hardships and disappointments and pain, when we go through those gut wrenching, heart check periods, when, when we fail, when, when we make mistakes, when there's sin in ourselves, in our camp, what holds us steady is not these, you know, novel theories about Scripture, novel teachings of Scripture, but it's these basic truths about the nature of God. His omnipotence, His omniscience, his immutability, His holiness, His sovereignty. These are bedrock truths that sustain our faith to the very end. And this is what Christ has given to us through the apostles. And the apostles were entrusted with this knowledge to, 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 to receive it, to keep it, to guard it, and to pass it on to the future generations, through the scriptures. Right? And they were faithful to do that. Second entrustment, was, they were entrusted with the task of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? They were commissioned to the gospel ministry. They were not to run on rabbit trails. I mean, there are so many things that can distract us away from the gospel. As a pastor, all the, you know, Marcus understands this, Bob understands, all the flock shepherds, all the ministers, you understand there's just so many things pressing at our, uh, pressing upon us so many urgent things that seem so important that's easy for us far too easy to stray away from the major to be in the to be in the thick of thin things of ministry so christ commissioned them you, you might not if you might forget or neglect to do other things but don't neglect the doctrine of god and don't neglect the gospel of christ whatever you do make the gospel the major component of your ministry Discharge the work of an evangelist. Be faithful to proclaim the gospel in season and out of season. This is your singular commission. And Paul repeated this throughout the epistles. Acts twenty twenty four. I don't care about my life. I'm paraphrasing here. I don't value my life. My value, my, my core principle is that I discharge what God has committed onto me. The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. That's my foremost concern, because that's Christ's commission to me as an apostle. First Corinthians 9, I can't get a reward for preaching the gospel, because it's not, I didn't enlist. This is not my choice. I'm not doing this voluntarily. I was enlisted. I was enslaved by Christ to preach the gospel. So for me, preaching the gospel is just what I'm supposed to do. I don't get any credit for preaching the gospel. The only way I can get credit is by doing it for free. right I have a right as all ministers to live off the gospel. but I'm an over- overachiever right I'm, I'm one of those guys I'm not, I'm, I don't want to settle for status quo. I have my rights, but I don't want to exercise that right. I want to go beyond and so because I covet the reward of God, covet God's glory because I desire so much to please the Lord that I'm going to relinquish my right and I'm going to labor, I'm going to work with my own hands, make money and proclaim the gospel for free. And then I get reward. So Romans 1.1, set apart for the gospel of God. 1 Corinthians 1.17, Christ did not send me to baptize. I mean, Apostle Paul, he must, I I am certain, because all pastors, we love baptism services. We love baptisms, right? It's the birth of a Christian. Paul says, but that's not my commission. That's not what God has called me to do. I love baptisms, but God has called me to not baptize, but to preach the gospel. Galatians 1, 12, I did not receive the Gospel from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ first thessalonians two four we have been entrusted with the gospel, entrusted with the gospel, so next week we 'll study how we've been entrusted. With the doctrine of God and the gospel, but for us, not just to understand the gospel. Yes, we need to understand the gospel. Yes, we need to live out the gospel, live the gospel in our lives. But just like the apostles, the entrusting, the stewardship is to preach. It's not enough just to live in line of the gospel, to preach the gospel to ourselves, to live the gospel. We must preach the gospel. That's the stewardship the apostles received, and that's the stewardship he entrusts to all believers. So we must be about preaching the gospel. So, if you fail to do a lot of things in ministry, but if you do not fail to preach the gospel, you are doing well. You are are following the heart of Paul. If you are valuing not your life, you are not valuing your family, you are not valuing anything in this world but you're valuing the task of testifying to the gospel, you are doing right. And we'll study that next week and as we look at the application of, of this to our lives and ministry. Now the third intru- a task, entrust the apostles, is this thing called mystery. It's this thing called mystery. The apostles were entrusted with a secret. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, uh, secret things belong to God, but things revealed belong to us and forever, and our children forever. So there are definitely mysteries in the Scriptures that we will never, that, that we cannot comprehend today. May be revealed in heaven, but may never be revealed. And if it's not revealed to us, it's hidden forever. But things that are revealed are for us, are for our edification, are for our benefit, and for our children forever. The apostles were entrusted with mystery, with a secret. And I try to come up with some illustrations, but, you know, I want to get the main entree right. So I don't spend much time thinking up illustrations. I just spend much time trying to exegete the text. And, you know, if I come up with illustration, great. If not, oh well, we've got to move on. But the only thing I can come up with is, uh I just read the other day. We're just You know, I'm like an information addict. I just... What's wrong with me? I just, like, I'm Cliff Clavin from uh, Cheers, right, that guy? He was like he knew, like, his master of trivial pursuit, of worthless, useless knowledge that he was interested in it. There's a little bit of Cliff Clavin in me, right? I just, I don't know why. So I read this, and I thought it was very intriguing. Like, scientists and biologists had discovered that there might actually be a, a use, a functional, purposeful use of the appendix, of a human appendix, People thought it was a worthless organ, abused, you know, served no useful purpose. But scientists, they think this theory holds true, that it's an organ that um, holds good germs, the storehouse for good germs. So when people, it was less populated in the world, it was very useful for your immune system. right? Why do I share that? Because it was a mystery for so long, right? <laughs> what is this appendix? Appendicitis? Not the end of a book, but the human organ, right? What is this thing? What is the purpose of this? Why did God create it if it serves no purpose? Well, mystery solved. Big deal. How does it apply to us, right? It really doesn't. But that's not the kind of mystery that the apostles are entrusted with. Some kind of novel secret that has no relevance to our lives. They're entrusted with a mystery, and it's the best kind of secret, it's the kind of secret where, where they don't have to keep it. They don't have to keep it a secret. That's the best kind, isn't it? You're given a great secret, and you're the one you get to tell everybody, right? You find out a single's right who likes you, right, and you can tell everybody, right? You don't have to keep it a secret, right? Those kind of secrets are fun. Well, these apostles were given insight into a mystery that were hidden. Uh, kings and prophets longed to know this mystery. It was hidden for the, from them, and it was, but it was revealed to the apostles. Turn with me to Ephesians 3, 1 through 4. Ephesians 3, 1 through 4. Now, the word mystery here occurs seven times in the book of epistles. Book Ephesians, epistle of Ephesians. Um, second, first time it appears is in one nine, making known to us the mystery of His will. The second time is in chapter three, verse is that two. I don't have my verses here with me, and then again on verse four, verse three. Let me read this passage. For this reason. I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery. As I wrote before in brief, and by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Now, this does not refer to anything mysterious in the person of Christ about the mystery of the divine union between the divine nature and the human nature. It's not about mystery about the cross or the atonement. It's the mystery of the church, of the New Testament church. Look at the previous passage. Ephesians two nineteen. So then you are no longer... Strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints. Who's he talking about? He's talking about us. Far as I know, no one here is a Jew. So all of us were once strangers and aliens and exiles. Foreigners to God. We were not the chosen people. We we're aliens to his promises. Right? We were outsiders looking in. That was our state. That was our condition. But no longer. With the saints, talking about Jewish believers, we are no longer strangers in exiles. But we are fellow citizens with the saints. Fellow citizens. U.S. citizenship is highly coveted around the world. More than that, citizenship in God's kingdom is most coveted. But we could not attain it. It had to be conferred by birth in the Old Testament. But it was given to us through Christ, through the gospel of Christ. And not only that, we are members of the household of God. We are members of God's own family. Through the gospel of Christ, we have been adopted into His family. And Christ is now our brother, and we are co-heirs with Him. And everything God has belongs to us. That's why adoption... It's, so, it's the perfect metaphor for us. It's used by Christ. That's why we're committed to adoption. Because it's the picture of the gospel, uh, gospel of Christ to all of us. That through our adoption into God's family, we have all the rights, all the privileges, even as Christ, God's own son. We experienced that a few months ago. Ethan was our foster son for the longest. He's still our foster son technically, but we're more and more confident that we'll be able to adopt him um, early next year. So early on, because he's our foster son, we can't officially take him out of the county or the state, definitely. So we would vacation in Arizona, vacation in another county. We can't take Ethan with us. So we've never taken Ethan on vacation with us. A few months ago, but the first time, we took him on vacation with us. And it was so weird. Like, what are you doing here? Right? Like, we have never, like, played with you. We never went swimming with you. And now he's here. And once we adopt him, we can't leave him behind on vacations. Right? We can't, right, separate him from our family. Being adopted means, right, I got to pay for his college education. Not I got to, but, I, you know, it's, right? Everything we have, he has equal share with our other children. All the rights, all the privileges, because he's adopted into our family. Just like Tiana, right? Just like Megumi, and others that are adopting in our church. You can't, that's what adoption is. And that's what happened to us. Through Christ, we were foreigners, strangers, exiles, but we've been adopted into God's family, we're members of God's household, and built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. This was the mystery. Go down to chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. This truth was, was hidden in the past. In other generations, it was not made known to the sons of men. Verse 5. It was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to His holy prophets, holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Through the gospel. Old Testament saints had no idea of this. They considered Gentiles dogs, unclean. You were to touch a Gentile, eat with him, enter his house, you're ritually unclean. You cannot go to the temple. You cannot worship God. They had clues in the Old Testament, but they were clueless as to This kind of union, right? Early Jewish Christians trying to understand this thought, okay, they can't be on equal footing with us. What has to happen is they must become circumcised first. They must become Jews and then they can become Christians. And they will always be second class citizens in the Christian church because of their ethnicity. They're not part of the Jewish nation. For the apostles, when they received this revelation, it was shocking for them. It was, uh, you know, truths that you hear, and you you take a moment to kind of marinate in your mind. And even then, it's so implications are so so wide that it takes time for you really digest it all, to really understand the gravity, the weight of what you're hearing. We see that happening in Acts. Chapter 10, please turn with me to Acts 10. Here is Peter experiencing or receiving this revelation from Christ of the Gentile inclusion into the Christian church. Acts 10 verse 1, at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people. He helped the poor. He prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, The next day, verse 9, as they were on their journey approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the 6th hour noon to pray. Here's Peter, I love this guy. He became hungry. He wanted something to eat. So while they were preparing for it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. This to confirm to Peter this message of the inclusion of the Gentiles into the local church, into the universal church as a people of God. And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, man who was well-spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guest. Next day he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and called together his relatives and close friends, called his whole family When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. And Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, verse 28, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But as God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. This is a radical step of faith by Apostle Peter. He's going against his tradition, his culture, his religion, his conscience. All his life, he's been taught this one thing: not to associate with Gentiles, not to enter into their home. And he's going against his conscience. Right? Just we don't have things like this in America, but you know, you know, like you're, you're taught when you're growing up: you know, break a mirror and seven years bad luck. Right? She go home tonight. Break a mirror, right? And see how that feels, right? Or like, you know, opening an umbrella indoors, bad luck, right? And my mom would yell at me. My mom, Korean culture, you know, whistling at night, right? Brings out the snakes. Mom, there are no snakes in America, or not, not in LA, right? But it disturbed her. Like, we we're raised with these things from our youth. It becomes ingrained in the five of our being, and they become oppressive, and they become powerful. And that was Apostle Paul times a thousand. And yet, revelation was given to him. Gentiles are welcomed into the family of God. So he goes against what is unlawful. He enters into their house. And you know what he does? He's entrusted with the gospel of Christ. And he proclaims the gospel. Verse 33. I went to you at once. Not therefore. We are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. They're here to hear. Uh, Peter and Peter preaches the gospel to them. Go down to verse 44. What happens? While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter answered, declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked and to remain for some days. He baptized them because the Holy Spirit resided in them received them. This is the transitional nature of the book of Acts. Remember? book of Acts is all about how the Gentiles were being included into the church. And the manifestation of the Holy Spirit's baptism was speaking in tongues. It was sign given to the apostles that God was accepting them. So in Acts 2, the Jews receive the Holy Spirit, they speak in tongues. In Acts 8, the Samaritans... Hear the gospel, receive the Holy Spirit, these half-breeds, right? These who, who, this, you know, this, this nation that turned against Israel, rejected Judaism, received the Holy Spirit, the apostles baptized them. In Acts 10, Jews, Samaritans, and now even outright Gentiles, you preach the gospel to them, Holy Spirit dwells in them, they're speaking in tongues, they're receiving into the church. So Peter baptizes them, welcomes them into the church, unfathomable to them. This was a mystery. This was incomprehensible. But this is the mystery revealed to them and now to all of us. That's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12:13, In one spirit we're all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. We're all made to drink of one spirit. Every single one of us. So back to Ephesians 3. We see that revealed through narrative in Acts chapter 10. Ephesians 3.6, we see um, doctrinal explanation of what has occurred. Ephesians 3.6, the explanation, the, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Paul declares that they are co-heirs, fellow heirs, because of the gospel. They are no longer outsiders. They are not to be treated as second-class citizens. They don't have to jump through hoops. They don't have to uh, be sabbatarians, they don't have to observe uh, Old Testament dietary laws, praise God, right? They don't have to, uh, you know, do, do all through rituals of the Old Testament, right? The Levitical laws, the civil laws of Israel, they're not bound to these things, they're bound to the moral law of God, because God's character does not change. But the civil laws, religious laws, are only for the nation of Israel. So for Gentiles to become Christians... All they need to do is embrace the gospel of Christ. And through the gospel, they are full members of God's family. They are fellow partakers of the promise that is in Christ through the gospel. That is a miracle. That is incredible. This was a mystery revealed to them, revealed to us. We'll look at the application of this next week. But just to give you a glimpse the next week, if we believe the gospel, if we're going to live in light of the gospel, then we must acknowledge practically the unity of the church. That any other label used by this world has zero bearing on our spiritual state on our unity on our oneness in christ right that we don't see each other as first of all men and women or our economic status education status or ethnic background we only see kingdom of god and kingdom of this world and if you are a citizen of god and you've been adopted into god's family we are one in christ and we practically lived that out right. in terms of our unity, in terms of our position, in terms of our giftedness. I kind of experienced this early on. I don't know if I share this or not, but you know, going to a master seminary, there were like five Asians in that whole school. And doing ministry there, I remember preaching lab, the guys were shocked that a Korean guy could preach, right? I didn't, I didn't have an accent, right? They were preparing for like, you know, can I comprehend this guy? Is he gonna be comprehensible? And, cause you know, in their mindset, you know, like, you know, Charles Fuller, John MacArthur, Billy Graham, they're all, right? I mean, understandably Caucasians, right? So Koreans can't preach. So when I went up and I the preached, they're like, man, like, a Korean guy can preach. I'm like, yeah. The Holy Spirit gives gifts, not just to Caucasians. Or Koreans, or Chinese people, or whatever. No, has no bearing. There's no bearing. Our ethnicity, or or background, or education, these things are not significant at all. If you're a Christian, equal position, in every way, and even in giftedness as well, in leadership as well, right? So, that was a third trusting, and they're faithful to that to carry that out, so much so that when Peter, because he was pressured by the Judaizers in Galatians 1, recorded by Paul, he was siding with the Judaizers, Right? what did Paul do? He confronted Peter to his face in front of everybody and rebuked him for not being faithful to this stewardship of the mystery that Gentiles are on equal footing that they did not need to be Jews in order to be good Christians. And Peter repented. He recanted his his compromise and stand still with the Apostle Paul. We must be faithful to that as well. And then finally, the Apostles were entrusted to model Christ-likeness to us. To live out true godliness. Now, we don't have time. This is the application part next week. The great mystery was. What does this godliness look like? It's not by the Pharisees, you know, wearing clothing and making sure everybody knows that they're fasting and praying out loud and doing religious rituals, external rituals, outward adornments of, of, of righteousness. The apostles were commissioned to imitate Christ and to set a pattern of righteousness for generations to follow. That's why only the apostle Paul, the apostles, could say with true humility, First Corinthians eleven, eleven: "Imitate Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ," because they are entrusted to rightly model biblical Christianity. And so we, we are, we are commissioned not just to study the doctrine of Paul, but to study the life of Paul. And I fear this is where maybe cornerstone lacks the most this is where we fall short the most not in the doctrinal stewardship that we receive from the apostles but the application, the practice, the obedience the life of Paul we strive after Paul's doctrine but not after Paul's life I'm reading an article on Christianity today uh, Dr. Varner from Masters College wrote an article about the didache this is the first the discipleship manual of the early church and the first discipleship manual of the early church was concerned mostly not with doctrine, but with practice. So to be a member of a church, they exhorted them on conduct befitting a Christian, not just doctrine befitting a Christian. See, Christianity in America, for all of us too, we are really just kind of had this, this myopic fixation, which is doctrine, and we neglect the practice, the obedience. But it's, it's, it's not either or, it's both and. We are called to commit to Paul's doctrine, but also Paul's life. And that's the challenge, because Paul imitated Christ in his life, in his sacrifice, in his sufferings. And that's what we are commissioned to do. What sets us apart from this world is not really just doctrine. What really, really sets us apart is our life. right? Good works is our light. In this world that makes us stand apart from Christ. It makes sense to me, Um that Paul, that God commissioned, the apostle commissions us to a certain lifestyle that will uphold the message. I mean, this was done in the Old Testament. The prophets, God ordered them to do certain things with their lives to, to propel the message, to, to give power to their message, right? Like Elijah was called to shave his head. Isaiah was called to walk around naked. Right? Jeremiah was called to buy an earthen clay pot and smash it from the nation of Israel, the elders of Israel. Right? Remember, uh, Hosea? What was he called to do? Like marry Gomer. Right? What, Lord? Mary Gomer? Can I marry her instead? No. I, Right? I want you to marry this prostitute. This prostitute is unfaithful to him. Marry her again. What? I gotta marry this adulterous woman again? Yes, because I am, I'm delivering a message to Israel by word and deed. By your mouth and by your life. So by you marrying this adulterous woman, I am calling Israel back to myself, that though they have been unfaithful to me, I will be faithful to them. That's the commission given to the prophets, given to the apostles. That's why Paul suffered. Christ suffered, Paul suffered, and that's the road that we are called to, to, to walk on. Right? Life of the cross, of suffering, of being persecuted, living the gospel out, so that it might give power to our message We'll study all of that next week. Let's pray. Well, Lord, as we just even conclude our time, we, with that message, Lord, it sobers our hearts when we think about the, the knowledge of God and the gospel and the mystery, our hearts are... We we can't understand that. We can't be good stewards. We can't be faithful to these things. And yet, when we're confronted with the last truth, truth about imitating Paul as he imitated Christ, our hearts are humbled and broken and lowly. We realize that we need your grace. We need your help. We need your strengthening. That this is not possible with our flesh that we need the help of the Holy Spirit just like we were saved by the Holy Spirit and we are sanctified by the Holy Spirit Lord our imitation of the apostles is only possible by the Holy Spirit we can't do this on our own on our own strength so Lord we will not abandon faith in you now we go back to the cross we look at the cross again one look at our sins one look at our woefully, we fall short of the standard of righteousness, practical righteousness that You've called us through the apostles. We look ten times to the cross and Lord, You are our home. Only You can do this in our lives. Only You can raise our game, raise our level of play. Only You can enable us to walk in a manner that will uphold the stewardship that we have received from the apostles through the Holy Scriptures. Lord, uh, humble us this week. Lord, prepare our hearts this week. For our study next Sunday, so that our hearts will not fear, our hearts will not be cowardly, our hearts will not be trying to enjoy this world or make much of this our life here, but our hearts be full of resolve to not value our lives, but value whatever it takes. Be faithful to the call that you have given to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus' name we pray. Amen.